Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's July the 19th, 2021. And the issue of children and education and race in particular uh, remains in the headlines. Um, the great question, of course, is what is critical race theory? Something that the New York Times is uh, addressing in all sorts of ways. Uh, there are certain states, and you can guess which ones where, where critical race theory is under attack in terms of its teaching in schools and universities. Uh, but it's not just the issue of what we teach kids young and, and, and teenage and perhaps college-age kids in uh, schools and universities. It's also what we should teach them at home. Uh, my guest today is the author of a really interesting, not only an interesting book, but also uh, a controversial op-ed writer. She had this piece in the New York Times uh, last week, How to Raise Kids Who Won't Be Racist. I'm not suggesting that she is she is arguing that critical race theory should be part of parenting, but it is something I, I do want to address with her. I'm quoting from her piece in The Times, if race is largely a social construct, then teaching children about it will only perpetuate racism. Right? Wrong. Studies show precisely the opposite. Uh, she develops uh, uh, this argument in her new book, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. Uh, I'm not sure if I pronounce it assholes or assholes. Anyway, uh, uh, I am going to ask its author um, how to pronounce that naughty word. Um, Melinda, welcome. Uh, is Thank it you. assholes or assholes? Because I, when I originally <laughs> put the... Uh, the, the the lower third together, I spelt it A R S E, but that's even more vulgar. What's the difference between <laughs> assholes and assholes? That's a good question. You know, I, I say assholes, but I am not am British. Um, so I, you know, it's funny because well, we all the have them, uh, Melinda, whether we we're do. British or American. It's just a question that's... of how we spell them. So let, right. let's get to the core of your book. A very provocative title, wonderfully written, very polemical. How to Raise Kids Who Aren't the A-Word. Uh, tell me um, how the, particularly the issue of race is so much uh, central to, to this book. Yes, right. So um, when I started writing this book, I was thinking about, you know, what are the sort of key characteristics of assholery that I think of. And of course, being racist comes immediately to mind as something that um, that's kind of a part of being an asshole. And so um, when I uh, decided what topics to focus on with this book, of course, you know, raising kids to not be racist was a central, a really important part of this. Um, and yeah, and so I, I'm a science journalist. So what I do is I dig into the research and I looked at basically all the research I could find on what shapes children's um, development of prejudice and and how parents can engage with their kids to reduce the chance that their kids are going to be racist. Melinda, uh, are you suggesting that parents teach? And I, I want to be careful with this term. I'm not part of the you know, reactionary right-wing media, so I don't even know what this term means, but it's become a very controversial one, critical race theory. Uh, are, are you suggesting that parents 
borrow parts of this in terms of bringing kids up? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, when I look at the research, the research really, when it's um, relating to kids and what parents can do to be talking to kids about race, it's not so much rooted in critical race theory. Um, but I mean, critical race theory, I think one of the, I, I'm not a scholar of critical race theory, but my understanding is one of the the central ideas is that, you know, racism is um, is institutionalized. It's, it's systemic. It's not just fueled by individual prejudice. It's fueled by racist policies, racist laws. And so, yes, in a sense, I am saying that we should be talking to children about, um, about the fact that racism is systemic. Um, and I mean, I can back up and explain a little bit about why I think this is important. Would that be helpful? Of course, yeah. And 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 to be clear, this it's not just a polemic. Uh, your your the subtitle of the, your book is science-based strategies for better parenting from tots to teens. And as you say, you're a science journalist, and 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 your arguments are very much backed up by uh, by research. Although, of course. Uh, I'm always a bit wary when people say reports say this because people only use reports that support their argument. But I'm not saying you're 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 cooking the research. <laughs> well, so with each topic, I really tried to look at all the research I could find that was related to how parenting strategies and parenting approaches shaped the development of different traits. So I was trying to look holistically. And yes, I mean, it's true, we all have confirmation bias, we all want to find the things that support our ideas. But I, I really tried to look at all the research I could find. Um, but with regards to race, it all is very consistent. Um, so, you know, the idea, I think a lot of white parents believe that if they don't talk about race or racism, their kids won't see color. They won't see race. They won't become racist. You know, if we just don't make a big deal out of it, our kids won't make a big deal out of it too. And I think this is a really, you know, natural um, uh, assumption to make. And it, it kind of makes sense on some level, but the research really contradicts it. And research suggests that kids do see race. I mean, it is all around us. They do see skin color and they notice it. But what they notice even more is that there is this very salient hierarchy, um, racial hierarchy in our culture. So they see that you know only one US president has been black um, and all the others have been white. And they see that more, um, working class people are people of color and they see that the, you know, the wealthiest kids in their school are white. And so they see all these ways that race kind of plays out um, and intersects with power in our culture. They, they notice this and then they start to try to understand it. And one of the ways, if nobody's there to explain that, well, actually racism um, is one of the reasons that one of the key reasons we see all these hierarchies, then they start to make other assumptions like the simple assumption is, well, maybe white people are smarter or better. And so we really need to be putting our voices out there to challenge this very simple conclusion that kids sometimes make if there's not other information. If they aren't told, well, actually racism is responsible for this hierarchy, then they start to believe that you know white people are just superior. You write this not only in the in the, in a Times op-ed, but also in a, in a Washington Post one. Uh, you write, unfortunately, though, white parents rarely have conversations about race with their kids, even when race seems like an obvious thing to discuss. Uh, in the same 2012 study, I think you'd mentioned that earlier, uh, researchers videotaped the mothers as they read a, a race-themed book to their four- and five-year-olds. Somehow 94% of the mothers managed to read the book without making any comment about race or ethnicity, diversity, or intergroup contact. Are you suggesting, Melinda, that 
when a mother is 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 reading to uh, a four or five year old that they should note the race of the the children or the or the characters in the story. Well, I think in this particular study, the parents, the mothers were reading books that were actually kind of designed to spark conversations about race. And so they were reading books about people who look different and should they still, you know, be friends with each other? And is it okay to to look different from someone else? And so these were these were books that were essentially they were there to prompt discussions about race. And um, and yet, nevertheless, these these mothers were kind of avoiding the topic. And I think you know, we, a, a lot of white adults have been raised in this sort of colorblind way from the time we were kids. And race just feels like a taboo subject. It feels like something we shouldn't talk about because we don't want to seem racist, right? And so it, it kind of makes sense. And so it's really hard for us, even when we are reading books that are really kind of all about race and skin color, it's still really hard for us to actually explicitly talk about race and skin color. And so in in a situation in which you're reading a book where race and skin color are relevant to the, the story, then yes, I think you should be talking about the differences in skin color. And you could be explaining, you know, what is what why do people have different skin colors and what's responsible for that and and just kind of normalizing the conversation and helping your kids understand what these differences mean and, and what they don't mean. Let's move on from race. It's obviously a, a, an extremely controversial subject, um, but your book isn't just about raising kids not to be racist. So what else are you suggesting parents should do to make sure their kids don't grow up to be little monsters? <laughs> oh, there's a, there's a lot in the book. Um, each chapter kind of tackles a, a different either characteristic that you might want to um uh, help your kids develop, like so, um, generosity, helpfulness. So I dig into the science. And you have of... a whole section on on fighting as well. Five. Yes. Uh, you, one of your pieces in Parents Magazine is five ways to keep siblings from fighting one another. Yes, right. So of course, you know the the way our siblings, the way our children engage with each other. I feel like is um, a really um, a. a a great landscape for teaching kids how to resolve conflicts in co cooperative ways. And so the ways that we kind of interact with our kids as they fight can teach them you know, how to resolve conflicts in you know, constructive ways. That, that science is actually really, really interesting because it, the um, historically psychologists used to say to parents, well, we think the best thing when your kids fight is to just sort of let them be and let them resolve the conflict themselves. And, and this will help them develop these you know, conflict resolution skills. But when they actually looked at what happened when kids resolve conflicts by themselves, they found usually the dominant, often the older child wins the fight based on like coercion or, or you know, they might hit their sibling too. So they were finding this actually isn't teaching very constructive ways of resolving conflict. So you're suggesting parents should essentially become the UN when it comes to struggles <laughs> between their kids. Um, what, well, what other no. things, in addition to making sure they don't fight, making sure we're, the, 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 these little people aren't racist. What other things do you think parents have a responsibility to do to make sure their kids don't grow up to be a-holes? Right. So I think another another big thing is it's really key to be talking to kids about feelings. This may not seem like it's really all that relevant to um, the development of kindness and generosity, but um, 
research very clearly shows that the more you talk with kids about feelings, the, the more comfortable they are with their own feelings, the better they manage them so they can handle anger better and, and other emotions like that. But also they become much more attuned to other people's feelings. And this really helps them become more compassionate. And so there's, there's research that, I mean, it's really interesting research that shows that when um, when kids have parents who are constantly, not constantly, but a, talking about feelings a lot and normalizing different kinds of feelings, that those kids, when they're brought into a lab situation, are much more likely to help people who are in trouble. They're much more likely to, you know, get things for them, pick them up, pick things up for them, and just be extra generous and helpful. And and it's tied to, I think kids perceiving other people's feelings and then saying, well, what can I do to make that person feel better? So that's another really big um, theme in the book is just normalizing, talking about feelings, validating feelings. Um, and yeah, there's all sorts of, I mean, so another one is, um, this might not seem like it's super related to assholery, but I think of, you know, raising kids to be motivated and to not be lazy is another mm. important thing. An another important quality we all kind of want to, to um, foster in our kids. And so I talk a lot about the research on, you know, what do we know about what helps kids stay motivated and what makes them more resilient in the face of challenges so that they don't give up. Um, and but you're suggesting that parents provide their kids with a kind of moral education. Um, many people over the centuries, we've had many shows about moral education of one kind or another, from Plato to Rousseau onwards. Um, at what point does the parenting end and the school begin or the church begin or the intermediary institution? Do you think your book in part is motivated by the breakdown of some of these intermediary institutions so that the parents have to do everything in moral terms, in terms of bringing their kids up? That's interesting. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that that was... Um, a direct influence on why I wrote the book. I mean, one of the key reasons I wrote it is I was looking at the data on bullying and on um, hate crimes in the U.S., especially after Trump was elected. And, and we saw there was data about what was happening in schools and kids were saying things like, let's build a wall and, you know, you should pack your bags if you weren't born here. And all of these very hurtful things that were starting to increase in, in the last, you know, four or five years. So my book is really a response to that. And and you know, saying what can we do to push back against these kind of pernicious influences that that we're having? Um, but you know, certainly, um, you know, especially as we mentioned talking about critical race theory, there's a lot of talk now. There's a lot of schools that are are um, and a lot of states that are saying we shouldn't be talking with kids about race at all in school. And so, yes, I do think, and in some ways, parents do need to pick up that slack, and they do need to be having these you know, moral conversations and conversations about ethics if they're not going to be getting them in school or or in church. Melinda, we've had a lot of shows about this. We had Cynthia Miller Idris on the show last year, suggesting that the far right is weaponizing youth culture and the family. I guess people on the right might suggest that the left is weaponizing it, perhaps even in terms of your book. Is there a cultural war going on in the home, do you think, in America? Every home um, is, it one way or the other, weaponizing morality, values, race, how we treat each other? Well, I guess, I'm, what do you mean by weaponizing? You mean... Well, I'm um, quoting. <laughs> I mean, that's okay. another of these words that if you if you like what they're doing, it's not weaponizing. If you don't like what they're doing, it's weaponizing. It's a, it's a, it's become a kind of 
you know, uh, it's like fascism or something. You only use it when you don't like the people who have it. Right. I mean, I, I don't think that you have to bring in, if you don't want to be talking about um, what like the far right is doing when you're talking to your kids about what's fair and what's moral. I, I don't think, I don't think you have to bring that into the conversation. I mean, I, my kids are pretty young. They're seven and 10. Yeah. How and... do they feel by the way about all this? I hope you're, you're, that they won't grow up to be a-holes. I, I, uh, I tested your theory on my 19 year old daughter who's a freshman at college who's very quote unquote politically correct. And I said, <laughs> should I have been teaching you about, uh, racial identities when you were four or five and she said no so uh i don't know and, and she's violently anti-racist as well so clearly mm, that's interesting uh clearly for some kids who grow up and she grew up in berkeley california which is you know a, a hotbed of toleration and leftists so i wonder whether this is all culturally rooted in other words mm. i mean kids who grow up in in in, in progressive families in berkeley it doesn't seem to matter what kind of education parents provide they still end up very progressive and perhaps the reverse is true if with kids growing up in, in Kansas or Missouri yes I think that is certainly that's certainly true I mean that kids are getting so much from their peers their culture around them you know what everybody's talking about what everybody's saying um and so you know I mean parents are just one part right of the puzzle I mean kids are, are being influenced by so many things and and of course, you know, genetics, and we could talk about, you know, differences in, in kids' brains and, and their brain chemicals. I mean, there's so many things that are shaping who kids become and, and how we parent is, is just part of that. But it is an important part, I think, and there is research to back that up, that, that kids, especially their moral development, their character is shaped by how their parents parent and what kinds of conversations their parents have. I think it's really important. Uh, Melinda, actually, as, as it happens, earlier today, I did an interview with... Um... Richard Leader, who has a new book out, Who Do You Want to Be When You Grow Old? It's a book about establishing meaning in old age. And I told him I was doing the interview with you and suggested that there is an important connection between aging responsibly, finding meaning in life, and the kind of upbringing you have. Do you suggest in your book that kids who aren't a-holes tend to be happier and live more meaningful lives? Yes, there is research that suggests that, you know, I think parents worry that if we, if we focus on kindness and generosity, that our kids aren't going to end up as successful or as happy. Um, and, but the research really shows that the kids who are kinder, the kids who, so for instance, um, there have been studies done that have tracked kids from kindergarten until age 25 and have found that the kindergartners who are kinder and more generous, they end up happier, um, they end up more successful, earning more money. I don't know if you know Adam Grant. Um, he's a Wharton School um, yes, uh, business school. Knows yeah, everybody knows Adam Grant. He wrote a whole book on this give and take, which is really arguing that you know the kindest, most generous people are often really the most successful. And yes, they're also the happiest. So I think you know it's not it's just about part of the sort of TED syndrome in our culture where wealthy people write books for other wealthy people about how to be good and they become even mm. more successful. Whereas the, uh, the underclass read more and more nasty books or violent culture. I, I'm curious, um, um, Melinda, on, uh, on, on, um, on the impact of the pandemic on all this. You wrote a piece for the New York Times I think it was late last year about discipline and bringing kids up in in the pandemic. 
Um, what's your view of, of how COVID changes all this? Or does it just mm. exaggerate it all? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we were stuck with our kids for months and months and months in the house together. So, you know, it certainly made sibling conflict more intense. Um, and... <sighs> And yes, there were a lot, I mean, with my kids anyway, there were a lot of meltdowns. I mean, there's a, there was so much change that happened during the pandemic. My kids' lives were totally uprooted and they couldn't see their friends and they couldn't do the things that were just really, you know, ingrained in their routine and, and the structure of their days. It was all just totally uprooted. And kids can often really struggle with change and with transition. Um, and, you know, they, they just get to the point where they, they can't really they have so much anxiety about the change that they act out more and they have more meltdowns and they really just struggle to, you know, function in a way. And so what I was arguing that piece is that during times like this that are very, very difficult and confusing for kids, they are going to act out, but we should have more compassion for them and we should, um, you know, engage with them and talk to them again about their feelings, but not so much punish them when they're struggling because they they often act out because they just don't have the skills to handle the particular situation and, and punish them, punishing them is not going to help that. Melinda, um, a few months ago, I had the Oakland-based, I guess he's a progressive writer, Matt Feeney. Uh, he has a new book out about over-parenting. His warning is the parents should stand back are you concerned that the arguments you present in, in how to raise kids who aren't a-holes might be a recipe for over-parenting? Parents should just stand back and let kids be kids? Well, I think there's actually a lot in the book that um, that also kind of ar argues against over-parenting. So one of the one of the arguments that I make, and the research really supports this too, is that we shouldn't be uh, rushing in to protect our kids from challenges, from failure. You know, we should be letting them tackle things and and not always succeed. And we should be standing back and letting them take risks. Um, I think that I think a lot of the problems with overparenting now is is the the coddling, the the keeping kids from you know experiencing any difficulty and experiencing any kind of hardship. And I think that actually holds kids back. And there's research that suggests that it um, undermines their self esteem because a lot of self esteem is really you know overcoming challenges and realizing that that you can and that even if you do fail sometimes, you know, your parents still love you and you're still valued. So I think I, I probably would agree with him. I haven't actually read his book, but um, but I agree that they're the parents are often a little too quick now to protect their kids. And we should be standing back and sort of letting them, you know, make mistakes. And I also think that kids, you know, kids have to make mistakes in order to learn from them. And that's that's part of you know how they grow and learn. And so we should we should be standing back and and letting them make those mistakes and learning from them. Melinda, we had the, I guess, the generational polemicist Jill Filofovich on the show last year. Uh, she wrote a very anti-boomer book saying that her generation, Generation X or Y, certainly a younger generation, were suffering because of the selfishness of the boomer generation. Uh, I, I'm part of the boomer generation, and I grew up, like everybody else, I think, hating their parents and trying to be as unlike their parents as possible. It seems like the new generation seem to be much more sympathetic to their parents. In terms of your book, do you think that if, if this is successful, if parents succeed in bringing up kids who aren't a-holes, do you think that these kids will end up hating their parents and trying to be as different from them as possible? Are they? In other words, maybe let me rephrase the question. 
in your advice, where's the room for rebellion for kids? Because <laughs> kids have to rebel if they're going to really become adults. Right. I, absolutely. I agree. And I think, um, I think that's an important part of growing up too, is challenging your parents. And, and I, one of the, um, one of the chapters of my book, I talk about parenting style and how um, you know the the parenting style that's really associated with kids doing well and growing up and doing well is authoritative parenting, which is where you aren't you know barking orders at your kids. You do negotiate with them sometimes. You know they do push back. You allow them to push back. You explain why you're asking them to do things, and you make compromises with them, and you you do negotiate with them. And so I, I think that. Um, there, there is definitely room in there for kids to be, you know, rebellious and to ask questions about why you're, why you're asking them to do things. And I think that's really helpful. And it helps to actually build a stronger relationship with their parents. And yeah, I think, you know, I, I hope that kids who are raised in according to the, the strategies that I discuss in the book, will actually have stronger relationships with their parents for it because a lot of what i recommend is you know talking to kids a lot about your own life and about what you know what you're experiencing as a parent how you're feeling what you're struggling with and talking about things that are awkward and difficult too that you might otherwise want to shy away from because those conversations over time build this very strong foundation in this relationship that's you know really based in love and support, but also respect and, you know, letting your kids have different opinions from you too sometimes and, and not, um, you know, not telling them that there's only one way to think about things. And but not like, different the, opinions about sensitive subjects like race. I mean, if, if your child said, I just, <laughs> right. you know, I don't like black people or I don't like Jews or I don't like Muslims, that that's unacceptable from your point of view as a parent, isn't it? Well, yes, but I think it's also important if your child says something racist to not jump down their throat and shame them for it. Um, when I interviewed um, uh, some some race scholars about this who were, um, you know, who were black um, or were people of color, they said, you know, if they hear children saying racist things, they they say, you know, take a breath and say, okay, where did you hear that? What does it mean to you? Because a lot of times kids will say things or do things and they don't really understand the significance. They don't understand how, you know, what it really means and how bad it is. And so instead of, you know, saying that's not acceptable, don't ever say that again, we should engage with them in a kind of less shameful, more constructive way to understand what they thought they were saying, what they thought it meant. And then yes, sharing what, you know, what we know that it actually means and why it's hurtful. So I think, there's there's ways to teach kids values and teach kids that what they're doing is wrong that don't involve yelling at them and shaming them, but instead having these conversations. Well, Melinda, when I come back in my second life, I think I'll choose to have you as a parent. Um, <laughs> finally, uh, we had the young, very smart uh, uh, Chicago University historian Blake Smith on the show recently. He wrote a really interesting piece about what's happening in University of Chicago, and he sees it in other Ivy League schools as well, where there's been this collapse of wokeness and meritocracy and this sense of everyone being a victim. Um, and the wealthier you are, the more you, you have a sense of, of victimhood. I would worry that perhaps some of your arguments could be used to, to make kids feel as if they are discriminated against rather than making them feel as if they're privileged how do we how do we sort of balance this so that the the successful 
don't think of themselves as always being um, uh, unfairly treated. Mm, to, yeah, to create a, a, a responsible, accountable new elite. Mm -hmm, right. Well, I think parents can talk about privilege. I mean, I certainly, I certainly talk with my kids a lot about all the different privileges they have. Um, I mean, white privilege, of course, but but so many other kinds. I mean, um, I think this is something that that we can sort of infuse into conversations with our kids in different ways, so that they are aware of you know how good they do have it, and that they have a lot of. Um, a lot of a lot of uh, things that people that other people don't, and so they can recognize, you know, where they are in the world and and how. So I think it's a matter of of having these conversations about privilege, and also, you know, talking to kids about what other people are experiencing. And you know, I talk to my kids about some of the some of the terrible race related incidents that have happened, so they understand that you know it's very different if you are a black man versus a white man in terms of how police will treat you so that they can recognize you know they don't have to deal with those problems they might not have an easy life but it's certainly not made any harder by uh, their race or you know the other privileges that they that they have well there you have it if you want to raise a kid who doesn't turn out to be an, an a-hole you need to read Melinda uh, Wenner Moyer's new book, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. Uh, really interesting, provocative book. I'm not sure I agree with all of it, but it's certainly a very credible and relevant argument. Melinda, congratulations on the book. Keep well. Thank Keep you. doing good work, both with your kids and all our others. And as I said, when my kids are, well, they're a bit too old now to have you, but if, if they really misbehave, can I send them off to you? <laughs> I would love to meet them. Yes, please send them here. <laughs> Thanks so Thank you, much, Andrew. Linda. Congratulations again. Thank you again. so much. Thanks. Take care.